0: Hello everyone, this is Darshan Maharaja at your service on the first episode of Our Canadian Journey. On today, April 4th, 2022, which, being a Monday, marks the start of a new week, and perhaps even a fresh week for the lucky ones, unfortunately I am not in that demographic. There is too much deja vu all over again nowadays. So, the element of freshness is conspicuous by its absence for me. But I do hope that you are on the happier side of the divide. Before I get to today's topic of discussion, it is my duty to express my sincere thanks to all of you who responded with encouraging words to the inaugural episode of this podcast. Your support means the world to me. Your enthusiasm convinces me that this shared journey is going to be enjoyable and fruitful. So, without further ado, let us get started on the first leg of this journey together. As you know, last week a Conservative MP kicked up a ruckus by calling Prime Minister Trudeau a dictator in the House of Commons. As we may expect, reaction to this usage was split along partisan lines. What I found interesting, although even this aspect isn't new at all, is that within the commentary at Panditocracy, no one bothered to delineate exactly what the term dictator means or what they meant by that term. Of course, it is a commonly known term and therefore it may not appear like it needs elaboration. But I think that in the present context, a deeper exploration of its meaning is warranted because it's only when we know what we mean by it that we can be sure that we are using it correctly. Unfortunately, and this is also all too common. Neither side engaged in this exploration with the result that in trademark Canadian fashion, the two sides were talking past each other. So, it now falls to independent voices to delve into what makes a dictator. Or more precisely, what constitutes a dictatorial regime. And this within the context of what we are discussing now. Among the many elements that characterize a dictatorial government, There are a few that are directly relevant to our present discussion, I think. I will enumerate them first and then expand on them in detail. Here is my list. First of all, the distinction that we make between a democracy versus a dictatorship is not a dichotomy, not a strict one, but rather a continuum. There is no clear-cut demarcation between banana republics and democracy it's not a world of black and white there are many shades of gray more than 50 that were the subject of that infamous book and what happens is the moment you mention anything that comes close to this area uh, people a lot of people not all of them they default to making a comparison with hitler because that is the dictator that they know most about. There is even a term for this weakness. It's called Godwin's Law, which says in simple terms that if an online discussion progresses far enough, then somebody will bring up a reference to Hitler. And by that, what is meant is also the associated references, like stormtroopers or Nazis. And this weakness is on both sides, to be clear. Because even the trucker's convoy was called a bunch of Nazis. And the reaction to this is also by now well refined. So you end up in a dead end, a cul-de-sac, where things cannot proceed. Again, people are talking past each other. So, for example, I witnessed an online conversation where someone made a reference to Anne Frank saying people who hid her, who sheltered her were breaking the law, whereas... The people who arrested her and finally killed her were following the law. And the response was immediately that how dare you use somebody's suffering and the Holocaust in general for uh, making a political point. So I try to stay away from that, not fall prey to Godwin's law. Um, If I had to give an example like this, I would say that when Gandhi picked up a handful of salt from a beach called Dandi in the state of Gujarat, he was breaking the law and the people who arrested him and jailed him were enforcing the law. Now this becomes something outside of the other person's repertoire to, to respond in the way they would refer to a reference to Anne Frank, for example. But given within, within that uh, weakness, uh, we have a serious situation here uh, as far as social cohesion is concerned. So we have to figure out what these terms mean, it now falls to independent voices to delve into what makes a dictator or more precisely what constitutes a dictatorial regime. Now, there are many elements of dictatorial regimes and among those, there are a few that are directly relevant to our present discussion. I will enumerate them first and then expand on them in detail. So here is my list. First of all, it's not a dichotomy. It's a continuum. There is no clear-cut demarcation between banana republics and democracy. It's not black and white. There are many shades of grey. Then, the exercise of power, how it is exercised? That is a very important determinant of democracy. And thirdly, the ability and willingness of the civil society to challenge the government. We normally talk about the ability in terms of our charter right to freedom of expression. But I think we need to hit the pause button and talk about our willingness also. So, those are the three points that I think are relevant here. Now, let's look at them in detail. First of all, I said there are grey areas between democracy and dictatorship. And uh, the most direct and relevant experience that I have in this regard is from India. If you follow my writing, you may have um, seen that I referred to it uh, in one of my articles, which was the declaration of national emergency in India in uh, 1975 on 25th of June 1975 to be precise. Uh, Now, this was declared by a democratically elected prime minister. In fact, even that is in a gray area, because she had won, uh, Mrs. Indira Gandhi, she had won a strong majority in the election prior to that. Uh, There there had been a war with Pakistan, which India won, and her popularity was riding high, so she won the next election uh, convincingly. And then uh, one of her uh, competitors in the election went to court saying she had used state resources to campaign as a candidate and that is specifically prohibited by Indian law. So, uh, the high court of the state of Uttar Pradesh in a city called Allahabad, one Justice Sinha gave a uh, verdict saying uh, the complaint is valid and her election is uh, therefore not valid. So, she had been an, uh, a democratically elected leader before the verdict came in, because until the verdict comes in, you can't say anything other than that. But once the verdict came in, that election was rendered invalid, which means she wasn't a democratically elected leader. And then she declared a state of emergency, which made her a dictator. Now, on a nitty-gritty side of this, uh, Prime Minister of India doesn't have the power to declare a state of emergency. That power rests with the President, who is like our Governor-General. So, they are typically figureheads, except that they have exceptional powers in certain situations. So, word at the time was that the then President of India, Fakruddhi Ali Ahmad, he had been pressurized by Mrs. Gandhi to sign this. And uh, as a result, uh, his health deteriorated and a short time later he passed away. But the gist of it is that a democratically elected leader was then deemed not democratically elected and then became a dictator. And uh, in about 20 months time, uh, her inner coterie uh, of yes men, I assume, uh, who didn't want to tell her anything that she didn't want to hear. So they must have told her that she was really very popular. So she called an election and uh, went on to lose it. Now, in in the interim, in those 20 months, she was ruling by decree, which means there was no effective constitution. It was a dictatorship. So, this, I hope, makes it very clear that the dichotomous classification that we think about of democracies and uh, dictatorships does not obtain in real life. What matters here is the exercise of power. Democracy is not about how political power is acquired via elections, but rather about how it is exercised. How are you exercising that power? Because you can have all the trappings of democracy, uh, parliament, elections, opposition parties, as long as they are not looking after the rights of the individuals, all those trappings don't matter. And on the extreme end of sham elections, you have all the dictatorships that have also held elections. Saddam Hussein won uh, an election, I think 99% or something, somewhere there. Even Saper Murat Niazo of Turkmenistan, when he was alive, he held an election and he similarly got something like 96%, etc. Those are at the extreme end. So, let's not focus on that. But, in between again, there is a gray area here in between completely legit elections and completely sham elections, there is a gray area. So all those trappings don't matter as long as the entire political process is committed to maintaining and preserving individual freedoms. That's when you have a democracy. Again as I said, the exercise of power, what, what I mean by that? There is first of all, arbitrariness of punitive action, which is preceded by lack of oversight. So, there is nobody to stop it from happening. And after the exercise of that power, there is an absence of legal recourse. Now, now, That brings us to today's Canada because for all the fanfare about the emergency measures act uh, having been uh, revoked or the the invocation having been pulled back, we still have the financial part of the measures in place where someone's bank account can be frozen, where their credit cards can be cancelled or frozen. And uh, all their entire financial life, mortgages, investments, you name it, everything can be frozen without a court order. So there is lack of oversight here. And as I understand, it cannot be challenged in court. Now, if that is true, then we have absence of legal recourse also, post the exercise of the power. So that kind of makes you think that this is not democratic. Question is whether it is unprecedented. And unfortunately, the answer is no. Because we have something called security certificates. I am sure you are aware of this. Where a person can be arrested and incarcerated without charge and without being able to see the evidence against them. Now, from what I learned online about these security certificates, there is some oversight. There is a federal court judge who is involved and he goes through the uh, recommendations of the ministers. Now, this applies to non-citizens. They can be permanent residents or foreign nationals. So, there are two ministers involved here, Minister for Public Safety and Minister of Immigration. So, the judge goes through their recommendations and approves it. So, to a certain degree, you can say there is oversight, but there is no charge. And the accused cannot see the evidence against them. So, again, you start feeling uh, that's not very democratic. Now, this security certificate was brought in in 1978. And uh, mostly used... Uh, after 9-11 in the global war on terror. Now, why didn't we object to it the way we are objecting to the emergency measures uh, for the financial part? I don't know. Maybe it wasn't on the radar. Maybe the media didn't talk about it. Or maybe because it was happening to a bunch of Muslims who were accused of being terrorists and without any, uh, court conviction, we believe that they were terrorists. That's not the way a democracy functions, again. So, now the fire has reached our homes in the form of the emergency measures. So, now we are all riled up about it. But the time to put out the fire was then, when it was affecting somebody else's house. Now, interestingly, uh, one of these cases... I think his name is uh, Mohammed Harakat. His case went to a court, and uh, the uh, initially the court said that his uh, there was a violation of charter rights here. But then it went to Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said that there is no violation of charter rights because the person is not a Canadian citizen. Now this, with all due respect to the Supreme Court and the wisdom of the judges, I believe this puts us in a very dangerous position. Because we now have a different way of judging uh, someone of an offense, depending on whether they are citizens or not. I don't think that's very democratic of us. So you see where I'm getting at. The grey area between a clean-cut democracy as classically or theoretically defined on one hand, which is the white area, and a dictatorship on the black area. The grey area in between is where we are now stuck. And as I said, maybe the media didn't do enough of uh, you know, analyzing this, the commentary at the panditocracy. And that brings me to another Uh, concerning issue. I wouldn't call it disturbing, although maybe you have a different opinion. It's about the media bailout fund, which was for $595 million. Now, I came across a thread by Jesse Brown of Canada Land Today, where he has detailed how the whole uh, information about who is getting money, how much, it's all veiled in secrecy. The beneficiaries are unknown. How much they are getting is unknown. So, I see a lot of people, you know, pinning this on the current government and specifically Prime Minister Trudeau. But there used to be a Canada Periodical Fund which came into being in 2009. That's a different government. And it also replaced two other programs. Canada Magazine Fund and Publications Assistance Program which predated the Confederation of Canada. So that brings us to a very important realization here which is that there are two ways in which a democracy can slide or become overnight. These are the two ways it can either gradually slide into a dictatorship or it can switch suddenly like what happened on 25th of June 1975 in India. In either case, what happens is that the government of the day takes a pre-existing arrangement which everybody was more or less comfortable with, with the exception of a few people who may be unhappy with it. But they take a pre-existing arrangement and then magnify it to the point of weaponization. Even in India, the... Uh, the power of the president to declare a state of national emergency existed. India became independent in 1947, but the constitution was adopted in January 1950. So from January 1950 to June 1975, 25 and a half years, this power had existed. Nobody had used it, even in wars. 1965, there was a war. Then three years, there was a severe drought food aid had to be sent in from the US. 1971, there was a war again. And Mrs. Gandhi was the Prime Minister at that time. She didn't declare a state of national emergency. But when it became her personal emergency, it was sufficient for her to make it into a national emergency. So, there is a pre-existing arrangement, like the security certificate or like this media fund which has existed in one form or another since before Canada became Canada so that is where the biggest uh, test is of how political power is being utilized if it is being utilized to hijack an existing arrangement and magnify it to the point of weaponization that's where we have a problem Another problem that we have, and this goes back to the expression of dissatisfaction with the government, the willingness to take on and challenge the government saying, hey, this is wrong and you can't do this, is the popularity of authoritarian measures. Wide public support is not necessarily a measure of a policy as being democratic. But we have restricted our definition of democracy to elections, which is one way of measuring public approval, but it's not the only one. There is a lot that goes into that recipe. For example, Bill C-36, which died on the floor in the previous parliament. and Minister Hussein has publicly said that they would be reintroducing it, the so-called online harms bill it would allow for proactive prosecution of people before they commit any act. So, if a lot of people are in favor of that, doesn't make it democratic. Secondly, popularity of any government stance can be engendered. It can be either media failure or media going along with it. People's lives are busy, they may not be sufficiently informed of the nitty-gritties, or partisanship. That is an unfortunate part of our reality here in Canada, that people are partisan to an extreme. For example, recently I was in a discussion on Twitter, and the other person asked me, who is your leader? My answer was, nobody. Everyone in Parliament is a representative. They don't lead us, they represent us. But that is the mindset that has uh, become deeply embedded in, uh, unfortunately, in too many Canadians' minds. So, these are the ways in which, uh, you know, popularity of uh, policy measure can be engendered. So, my definition of democracy, let us set aside everything else. You know, popularity or the existence of a parliament, set aside everything else. Democracy is a system that allows the maximum personal freedom without risking chaos. Now, if you see a deviation from this definition, then I would say at least that we are sliding into a less democratic um, part of the graph. A democracy can exhibit characteristics of dictatorship at times. Now, those of you who are familiar with particle physics will know that an electron in an atom doesn't actually exist in certain locations. It shows a tendency to exist. This is something similar to what I am talking about here. That a democracy can exhibit characteristics of a dictatorship at times. So, a democratically elected politician can also show a tendency to be a dictator. The greater the frequency with which the politician does this, the closer to black the nation gets in the gray area. And the more of them do it, or the more senior of them do it, the greater the drag towards the black area so you know I was listening to all this brouhaha and reading about it and it appeared to me that the question as to whether Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is a dictator or not is the wrong question to ask the right question in my opinion is whether Canada is gravitating to more authoritarianism perhaps with public approval but as I said that public approval doesn't mean anything in determining the democratic credentials of uh, a government or a policy so if we gravitate to more authoritarianism then it will in the end make any government a dictatorial one and any prime minister a dictator because consider this the emergency measures that have not been revoked what happens if there is a change in government (laughs) whoever is calling the present government dictatorial now, will they call the next government dictatorial? They are going to love the power. It's human nature. I am not picking on them. I am not blaming them. Humans love to have power over others. It's one of the most basic tendencies of human beings. So, uh, we have to look at the entire process, how it is unfolding and how we can fold it back as people. You know, we normally talk about people power, but in many instances it's people versus power. And I think we have a case like that on our hands. So instead of calling somebody a dictator, look at the process, what is happening, and what we can do to pull it back. Those were my views on this whole debate. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you agree. And uh, whichever way, let me know in the comments and I'll be happy to incorporate your thoughts in my thinking also because we have to keep evolving in this journey that is our Canadian journey. I'll see you the next time. Thank you and goodbye.